From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. Most of my books are about preserving culinary lore and tradition. My main purpose in my work is to preserve recipes and culinary lore and history and tradition to pass on to the future generations. Hi there, I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart, and you're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. You just heard from today's guest, Anissa Halu. Anissa is a leading authority on the foods of the Middle East, Mediterranean, and North Africa. She's penned nine cookbooks, and we sat down to talk about her most recent and her most extensive. It's titled Feast, Food of the Islamic World. Now, troubled by the vilification of Islam, Anissa set out to produce a vast book that celebrates the varied foods and culinary practices of the world's second largest religion. At more than 500 pages and packed with more than 300 recipes, the book takes us on an 8,000-mile journey as Anissa weaves together the recipes by finding common ground in ingredients and in Muslim celebrations like Ramadan. What we're presented with, then, is a work that fellow cookbook author Adina Sussman dubbed a sumptuously photographed, meticulously researched, and deeply scholarly love letter to edible Islam. In today's conversation, we're talking with Anissa about the process of creating this comprehensive book, about what led her to cookbooks after a career in the art world, and about her mission of preserving recipes and culinary practices for future generations. And we'll hear about her artful pursuit for one delicacy in particular, meat from the camel's hump. Let's head now to our studio inside the Civic Kitchen Cooking School in San Francisco, where Anissa Halu joined us to talk cookbooks. Hi, Anissa. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Brian. We're glad to have you, and we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, Feast, Food of the Islamic World. What prompted you to embark on a book that's sort of so wide in scope and really takes a look at all of the foods that we can find in the Islamic world in in one large volume? I was discussing my next book with my agent, my then agent, because I I changed him in the meantime. Um, and he suggested that I write a book on Middle Eastern food, um, okay. a big kind of comprehensive volume. And I wasn't so keen because Claudia Roden had written her kind of, uh, I mean, you know, like she's the guru of Middle Eastern Cooking right. Paula Wolfert had also written extensively, and I didn't particularly, even though I would have added a lot of fresh stuff, I didn't particularly want to do something that wasn't, you know, entirely original. So I kind of played with the idea a little bit and then decided not to. And, and then, you know, with starting with 9-11 and with ISIS and all this, you know, the vilification of Muslims, Islam and Muslims in the press and generally was kind of upsetting, even though I'm not Muslim, but it's just, you know, it was the generalization of turning a whole religion and a whole people belonging to religion into kind of evil people. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Um, and then it occurred to me that it would be a great way to present the religion and its people in a positive light by writing about the food, given that the history is very rich, goes back way back and with great civilizations, empires, etc. And the food is wonderful all throughout the Islamic world. 
And so in some ways it was a political statement then. Yes. Yeah. We're talking about it in this political context, but at the same time, we know that a quarter of the world's population is Muslim. So it's certainly prompted by some of these specific moments that you noted, um, where there was some sort of political climate that you were contending with, but really sort of focusing on foods of the Islamic world, which is so much of the world and represents so many people across the globe. Um, and you noted as well that you yourself are not Muslim. So you were ra- you were born in Beirut. Is that right? I was. And, and you were there until your early 20s? Yeah, I left it. I was 21 when I left. Okay. And then uh, coming to this from a perspective, from that perspective of not actually being a practicing Muslim, uh, did that give you advantages, do you think, in putting this book together, having that sort of outsider perspective a little bit? I think the outsider perspective is useful. Um, well, first of all, we always lived in a Muslim quarter in Beirut. So, okay. it, you know, the fact that I was Christian did not mean that I didn't know a lot of Muslims and the, the, the rites and the, you know, the celebrations and the foods as right. well. The, the advantage is that you don't take certain things for granted. So it's like a discovery. And the more you research, the more you discover. And as an outsider, you have a sort of maybe fresher outlook or a slightly different outlook and you can present things, the foods, stories, history, etc. in slightly different light. Um, maybe the disadvantage is that, you know, I don't practice Ramadan and I don't, you know, I'm not Muslim. So, but I have spent a lot of time in the Arabian Gulf. I was brought up in a country that is now majority Muslim. I'm very familiar with both the religion and, and its people. Yeah, but, but also not sort of actively participating exactly. in some of those rites and celebrations. So you can sort of put your brain power and your thinking and your energy into the rites and the practices and the foods. Yeah. And also I looking, I look at them as maybe in a more exciting way because mm. I'm being an outsider and, and finding kind of, you know, different details and telling stories about how, you know, when I was in Egypt watching people waiting for the break of the fast and being so serene and not at all kind of, you know, dying of hunger when, and thirst when they would have been because they had spent you know, from sunrise to sunset without a drop of water or any food going through their, you know, lips. Now, you talked about the the history here, and obviously there's many, many hundreds, thousands of years of history behind some of the recipes that you've included in the book and some of the cuisines that are featured. You identify sort of three, I think, major historical moments um, that helped sort of shape the foods of the Islamic world. Can you give us sort of a primer on what those are, I think, starting with the Abbasid Caliphate? Well, basically, Islam was born in a very... In, in a desert country where there was very little, even though they lived in an oasis. And as dynasties were established, they became richer, they, you know, more civilized, I mean, more sophisticated, I should say. And they got introduced to different foods and the f- produce, fresh produce, etc. The Abbasid uh, Caliphate is interesting because they were very keen on Persian cooks and they were the first ones who started hiring Persian cooks and took them with, with them as they expanded their empire. Okay. So Persian cuisine is the mother cuisine of all because it's the first great cuisine. Right. But then with the Ottomans, another kind of empire civilization was born and they kind of took from the different countries they occupied and refined it in the Topkapi Palace kitchens. And, and, and also it was a 
probably a fresher, more varied cuisine. And they were very, I mean, they had huge kitchens and each section was like the sweet maker, the sweets makers, the bread makers, the rice cooks during Ottoman time. The way to test a, a cook's uh, ability is to ask him to cook rice. But if, if he knew how to cook rice well, he was able, you know, he was hired. Okay. And then the Mughals, uh, the Indian, you know, Muslim dynasty, uh, they took from Persia and they took from, you know, and they added their own, you know, with lots of spices and everything. So these are the three great cuisines. But then, you know, when you go to Indonesia, which is the most populous Muslim country, you lose all, the, I mean, you lose all three in a way, but you find influences slight i would say but you know and i think a lot of what you were doing in this book was finding where those similarities and where those sort of through lines existed across sort of borders that exist today and countries as we might know them to sort of trace the roots of some of these foods and these recipes yes absolutely and what is interesting is that the islamic world more or less still traces that arc of the islamic empires so it's not as i mean indonesia comes is a bit outside of it um and malaysia i would say but it but it's still largely the same sort of uh, geography and speaking of geography there's some influence there as we look at those in particular those three moments in um the shifting of the capital right so during the ottoman empire the capital becomes istanbul what sort of role did that geographical aspect play in shaping some of these cuisines? Well, I would say that the produce and, you know, being near the sea, having a lot more fish, for instance, than where the, in Baghdad, where, when the capital was in Baghdad, right. or even in Cairo, although you have river fish there. And also the different sort of cuisine. That's why in Istanbul, they, they you know, like, I think the meze come even though I'm not sure you can trace the Meze tradition all the way back to the Ottomans. But, you know, the, the different ways of eating, different ways of cooking, the olive oil comes into it. Um, lots of different, you know, produce and products that affect the, the, the cooking. And you know, there's a few particular food items that are sort of central here and very important. The first of which, and, and maybe the most important, at least the most important fruit is the date. Can you tell us a little bit about the role that the date has played? Well, the date was absolutely essential from the very beginning, given that they were, the Islam was born in, in, in Mecca in a oasis where there, the, the main foods were dairy from the, the animals they had, the date that was not only a fruit to eat, but also a bartering. You know, they bartered the date and also right. they used the wood and the, the branches, the leaves to build. I mean, you know, it's like tree. from the date tree. Okay. So it was a complete sort of a survival element for Muslims uh, in those. And of course, the, you find the date in Iraq, you ha you find you now find it in California, but right. I mean, <laughs> yes, everywhere. It's, not, it's not the same thing. And the date is essential during Ramadan, because the Prophet Muhammad apparently broke his fast with three dates. And almost all Muslims will have dates at the table during Ramadan and in the Arabian Gulf and in other places too, they will break their fast. The first thing they will eat would be dates and either on their own or dipped in tahini or in yigit, which is a kind of um, curd. Now in these recipes, you focus on keeping them 
primarily sort of how they were given to you or how they were transcribed to you, sort of keeping them intact there. And I think you've you've even said or written that a recipe that's passed on from generation to generation and given to you needs to sort of stay as it is. You're sort of recording history in that way. How did you decide to make sure that that was the approach you were taking in this book? Whereas some of your other books, I think, have been um, a little bit less focused on really cementing a recipe in its historical context. Um, I think most of my books are about preserving culinary lore and tradition. Okay. Um, I mean, I've, I veered a little bit in a couple of books, but my main purpose in my work is to preserve recipes and culinary lore and history and tradition to pass on to the future generations. So it wasn't a difficult decision at all. This said, I, I like simplicity in the kitchen. So I might like simplify a recipe or give more precise instructions than the people who gave me the recipes. And, but I wouldn't change it at all. And I certainly wouldn't change the flavor and I wouldn't, <laughs> maybe I'm at fault that, but it's very rare for me to give substitutes mm. unless they really work and they don't change. Yeah, unless they're really important. I think one thing that you do is actually with some of the meat recipes, um, which may traditionally be roasted as an, a whole, the whole animal may be roasted and most sort of home cooks don't have an oven that could hold a whole animal. So you do make some adaptations in that way in yes, this book so that yes. you can create those flavors at home. Now you also note for each of these recipes, sort of the country of origin or where we can sort of trace that recipe back to the country. Um, how did you decide to include that to sort of signify the recipe to a particular country? And are there things that we as the reader can sort of learn when we look at a recipe and, and see, oh, this is from Syria, that might mean that it's sort of this style or this technique or would play on these flavors? Um, actually, I, I would have probably said, you know, where the origin of the dish a recipe came from within the head notes. But my publishers had the very good idea of putting it under, you know, the title right. of the recipe. When I, when I started thinking about the book several years ago, the, the way I divided it, you know, as it is now was not immediately apparent to me. You know, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking, should I divide it into countries? But then I thought that would be very boring and probably repetitive and not particularly exciting and possibly confusing as well, because then you don't, you know, if you're going to use the book to cook a meal, you're not going to say, oh, well, today I'm going to cook from Indonesia, the starter, and then, you know, the main course from Lebanon and right. whatever. So eventually I decided to divide it into essential foods and having the, the, the origin, the country of origin under the title of the recipe was a very important piece of information. And one chapter that you do include is on bread, uh, bread and rice, um, two very important staples. And you note that bread is sort of the main staple of all Muslim countries' cuisines, except for sort of Southeastern Asia and the Arabian Gulf, um, where rice sort of fills that role. Can you tell us a little bit about the breads of the Islamic world? I think you find bread everywhere in the Islamic world. In some countries, it is the staple. In other countries, rice is the staple. And in some countries, both bread and rice are the staples, the staples, but they're not eaten at the same time. Okay. So if you take Iran, for instance, they would have bread for breakfast and rice for the main meal, but they would still serve bread at the table. Mostly flat breads. Um, I don't think there is any kind of 
seriously leavened bread. I mean, sure. you know, risen breads. Right. Um, and either, either baked in a tanur oven, tandoor oven, or on a flat, uh, flat or concave, uh, metal plate heated usually with, uh, wood fire. But recently I was in Uzbekistan and I saw an oven that I had not seen before, okay. which was like a tandoor oven, but horizontal. And they stuck the loaves even against the ceiling. It was quite perilous for the, for the baker to enter into that very hot oven. <laughs> Sounds dangerous. <laughs> it yeah. was, but he was incredible. Okay. Um, so basically it's cooking the, the, the bread against a hot surface. Right. As against putting it inside a hot oven right. and having the heat all around. It's, it's the wall or the metal plate or whatever that is actually baking the bread. Now, you mentioned you were in Uzbekistan recently. I imagine for this book, you traveled quite a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of putting this book together? How long did it take? Where did you go? How many trips did you make? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went in a friend of mine counted the countries and the acknowledgements and he counted 13 countries, but there were more because I had traveled before. And uh, so I went to at least 13 countries, but I'm sure it was more. To write and test the recipes, it was three years, more or less, from when the book was commissioned. Mm-hmm. But I had started working on it and thinking about it, you know, like two two years before that. Right. So I would say five to six years um, working on it and traveling extensively to the countries that I had been to, the countries that I was brought up in, because I'm like half Lebanese, half Syrian. And, and the new countries that I went to, and I could have gone to many more, but you know, there were countries that were too risky for me to go on my own, like Afghanistan, Mali, Burkina Faso. These were countries I would have loved to go to because I'm very interested both in the country and the food. But, you know, with all that's going on, I didn't feel, you know, secure going on my own. Yeah. And the dish on the cover is a Syrian dish. And you, you noted you're half Syrian. You, I think you spent summers when you were younger in yes. Syria. Um, so this is a very important dish for you or a very, yes. uh, a one, one that you really love. And this is a, a lamb meatball in a sour cherry sauce. Can you tell us a little bit about that dish since it's the star of the beautiful cookbook? Um, well, it's the quintessential dish of Aleppo, uh, in Syria, which is the, the second largest city or maybe the largest city. And the, definitely the gastronomic capital of the Middle East. Yeah. And it's a marvelous dish, very simple to make, basically meatballs that are considered here, you know, like cheap food, whereas in the Arab world, mincemeat is used to make very elegant dishes. The meatballs are cooked separately, they're seasoned and cooked separately, and then they're dropped into a, a very interesting, intriguing sauce made with sour cherries and a little bit of pomegranate syrup. Mm-hmm. And is that like a pomegranate molasses? Yeah. Similar? Yes, um, it is. We'll be right back with the second half of our conversation with Anissa Halu. Don't go anywhere. We're about to hear from Anissa about her quest to taste camel hump meat, what led her to cookbook writing, and some authors who have influenced her career. Right now, we're headed to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hi, Brian. I'm doing well. Great. So we just sat down with Anissa Halu to talk about her latest book, Feast, Foods of the Islamic World. Uh, I hope you have something to share with us today. Sure thing. Um, Anissa has been a fantastic author for many years. Yeah. Um, she's of Lebanese descent. And, you know, I 
always regretted actually when I first started my shop, she was leading food tours in Syria. And I always thought, well, someday I'll do it. And of course now that is past and I'm sad that I don't get to, but her knowledge of the Middle East is so deep and long. And I just love her. And the book is wonderful. I'm so glad that she's looking at all these different countries, not just one for a change, but she really goes so deeply into each one. It's it's a book for the ages. Yeah. And for people who haven't seen the book, I mean, it's huge. It's, yes. a, it's a massive volume. It really is sort of encyclopedic in a yeah. lot of ways and sort of gives you a lot of context around where various recipes are coming from and influences and a lot of those personal stories. Yeah. Have we seen a lot of books like that sort of With from the, the Middle East? You know, not from the Middle East. Yeah. Um, there are some classics, you know, one that I would compare it to is Maricel Prescia's book, uh, Gran Cocina Latina, oh. which covers all of Latin America, including the Caribbean, Mexico, Central America, and South America. Sure. Um, books like that are not, uh, terribly common. And when they're, when they're finally published, they become the, uh, you know, the sort of classic book on the subject. Um, so, you know, especially one like this, that's so well researched and that really looks at the differences between each country, not just sort of a general Middle East blend of spices and flavors, but it actually separates out each country. That's what's right. important. Yeah, exactly. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Anytime. And now back to our conversation with Anissa Halu, author of Feast, Food of the Islamic World. Another dish that, that you talk about in the book is camel, and in particularly <laughs> your quest for camel hump, right? Um, which, I don't know, we don't want to ruin it too much for people because we want them to to pick up the book and read the story for themselves, but it, it was quite a quest for you, right, to taste, um, I think you were in Dubai or outside of Dubai, really quite a quest for you to get your hands on a, a good piece of camel hump. Well, I was denied it the first time right. I you know, discovered it because we, I was filming this, uh, series called The Chef Discovers Al Chef Yaktashif in the Emirates. And I was led, um, by a, my co-presenter, a mon- wonderful poet to discover different foods of the Emirates. And one of the episodes was about a party, you know, a reception at one of the grandees. I think it was Alain, one of the Emirates. Mm-hmm. And so where a whole camel would be cooked. So I was very excited. And then they told me the camel hump is the prize piece, you know. And and so we arrived at this compound because this grandee had a house for himself, for the, you know, for his children. And then a majlis. A majlis is where the men receive. And so we got out of our cars because we, we had a convoy of cars and you know, I kind of start walking towards the majlis, which it, which is where the reception um, was being held. And the producer said, you can't go. And I said, what do you mean I can't go? He said, no women there, only men. Right. So I was very, very disappointed. And I said, well, at least send me a, a bit of that camel hump to the, the wife and the mother's house where I was going to eat with them. But they didn't. Yes. So I was very upset. <laughs> and that started your quest to, and to that get your started hands my on quest. Your own. And luckily enough, two days later, I was in a catering kitchen where I was to, uh, learning how to cook some Emirati dishes. And they were cooking a whole camel for a party. Right. So I begged the chefs to give me a piece and they very kindly kind of sneaked a little bit of the camel hump with that you know, letting it show for me to have a taste. And then a couple of years later, I decided to write an article for Lucky Peach. And then 
a very generous friend of mine gave me a whole camel so that I could have a hump to cook myself. <laughs> yes. And so the hump is, is a delicacy. It's the prized yes. piece of the camel and it's fatty, but it's a, a sort of a different type of fat than you might think about when you think of fat on other types of meat. Is that right? Well, yeah, because it's a little bit like a f- the fat tail on, you know, the, the special lambs that have fat tails, but actually it's not the fat that people eat. It's the, the, the fillets, the fillets of meat under the hump against the spine okay. that people kind of, you know, pull out from okay. under the fat and, and eat it. Okay. Now you, um, do you have other favorite recipes in the book? Lots. There's, I mean, there's hundreds <laughs> to choose from, right? <laughs> but certainly the, the, um, meatballs on the cover yeah. are probably a favorite for you. Are there others? I, there's a few that caught my attention, like the Zanzibari grilled fish in a coconut sauce. Yeah, looks that's really delicious. delicious. And the rice that's cooked in coconut milk is delicious as well. Okay. Rice. And, and Zanzibar coconut. is quite, uh, quite a fascinating place. And, um, I was there during Ramadan and there was another, another uh, thing that I loved there, which was a bread that was made with a very loose dough, a sesame bread that they then baked in a, in a pan really over charcoal, but they let the bread stick to the pan so that they could invert the pan and, and cook the top of the bread against the fire. And I was very intrigued by this whole thing because I thought the bread was going to fall into the fire, but in fact it didn't. And then they scraped it off the pan and started again. It was quite a wonderful, um, delicious bread, a bit like the focaccia, Italian focaccia, because it's crispy on top and very fluffy inside. And the, the method, the, the technique was very interesting. Now, your entree into cookbook writing sort of came after other careers, right? You were, tell us a little bit what prompted you to write your first cookbook, which this is your ninth, I believe, cookbook? Yes, it's yes. my ninth cookbook. So you wrote your first in the, published in the early nineties. Yes. What prompted you, which was called Lebanese cooking? Lebanese cuisine. Lebanese yes. cuisine. Uh, uh, what prompted you to do that book, your first one? Well, actually, it wasn't, it was a very <laughs> off the cuff thing because I was planning to write about collecting because I was in the art world and I, and I had formed a collection with rather limited means because I didn't have that much money, but a very interesting collection. And I wanted to write about people who had done the same by anticipating trends and, buying beautiful things, but without having to pay too much money for them. And my literary agent, who I had acquired for that idea, invited me to dinner with a Lebanese friend of hers. And they were talking about cookbooks. And it was the beginning of the trend towards cookbooks and cooking and food as a sort of trendy, you know, occupation. And I was listening to them and I was thinking there isn't a good Lebanese cookbook for those who are not familiar with the cuisine and certainly not one that is user friendly. And my mother is a great cook and I thought I could write a book with her recipes. So I just said, Oh, you know, I could write a book on Lebanese food. And my Lebanese friend shot it down because there is a kind of Lebanese Bible cookbook. Mm-hmm. Um, and my agent immediately said, oh, I have a publisher who who's looking for somebody to write a book on Lebanese food. And so when my Lebanese friend shot down the idea, I said, but who is ever is going to use that book, that Bible, where one of the recipes says, kill your chicken, pluck it. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like we early 90s was 25 years ago, but it's still, it wasn't a time where you killed your chicken and plucked it to right. cook it. <laughs> sure. 
And um, so the two reasons why I was interested in doing it was one, to record my mother's recipes, and second, to you know produce a book for all these young people who were displaced by the civil war hmm. and who didn't have the the luck that I had of seeing everything done at home and knowing everything about the food naturally, not, you know, seeking to, uh, not seeking the knowledge, but just having it available to me. Yeah. Now, as someone who's written nine cookbooks, people might be surprised to know not only did you, you come to cookbooks after another career, but you also were sort of against cooking for yourself <laughs> early on, right? A sort of a feminist statement. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you ended up actually then getting into the kitchen and cooking more yourself. Um, the reason why I started cooking wasn't very particularly feminist, but I'll tell you the story. <laughs> okay. But your, your resistance at first was... My resistance was, was totally feminist. Yes. I absolutely refused to be domesticated and I didn't want... I mean, I loved my mother's food, but I didn't want to be the provider on a daily basis of anybody's, you know, food. So when I started living with my first partner in London, the first thing I said to him, I said, don't expect me to cook for you. Whatever you want you know, you, you, you look after the food, your food, whatever, and we go out, but I'm not cooking on a daily basis. He did, he, it was fine. He didn't mind. Then one, one day he invited a very glamorous blonde, uh, American friend to the house and he asked me what was for dinner. And I said, open the fridge door and look what's inside <laughs> the fridge and you can decide what's for dinner. And, but then she cooked the dinner and I was looking at both of them and looking at how pleased he was with whatever. I don't remember what she produced. But then that's where the non-feminist thought came into my mind because I was like thinking, maybe I should cook. Maybe I should start cooking. So I very rashly said, let's have a dinner party for our friends, about 30 people. I had never cooked before one dish in my whole life. That was the the middle of the civil war, no contact with my mother. I couldn't call her or anything. But the interesting thing, I thought, okay, I'll cook from memory. I've seen them enough many times. You know, my grandmother and my mother and my aunt prepare things. And I will cook. Hopefully, I will know how to prepare kibbe and hummus and, you know, typical Lebanese dishes, tabbouleh. Sure. But it was the 70s and London was a culinary desert then. So I had to kind of go different places to get olive oil, bulgur wheat, tons of parsley, etc. Right. But I did produce the dinner for 30 people. Admittedly, I have no idea how good it was because they were all, you know, foreign. They were not Lebanese. I don't remember how good it was. But it was a great success. And I was able to produce the dishes, which meant that I could cook from memory. So I knew, after that, I decided to occasionally give dinner parties and cook for my friends, but continued with my stand of not cooking on a daily basis. And to this day, I have to say that I don't cook on a daily basis. So there's a few cookbook authors that you specifically thank in the acknowledgments, and I'm curious if you can tell us who has sort of inspired you as you've written now nine cookbooks over the course of your career. I know you specifically thank Carolyn Phillips, who wrote recently, um, All Under Heaven, which is a sort yes. of an exploration of, yeah. I think, the 35 
regional cuisines Absolutely, of China. Yes. You also thank Fuchsia Dunlop, who uh, you said contributed some recipes for you and yes. helped you with some um, study of Muslim Chinese food. Absolutely, yes. Are there other cookbook authors or influencers beyond those two who sort oh, of influenced yes, you? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I have a great friend in Turkey called Nevin Halishji, who's the kind of guru of Turkish cooking. Okay. She's the grand dame of Turkish cooking, and she's written endless cookbooks and is very, very knowledgeable. And she's kind of let me adapt some of her recipes. There's a, a Margaret Chayda, who's now dead, but she's written a wonderful book on Persian food. And um, she yes. also, you know, gave me per- permission to adapt some of her recipes. The and Legendary then, Cuisine of Persia, yes, I think is her Yes, absolutely. Book, yeah. And there's this French author called um, Z. Guinaud-Dauphin, who produced a beautiful, beautiful book on the cooking of... Um, Morocco, basically, Les Secrets de la Cuisine en Terre Marocaine, I think, in yes. French. And she, it was published in 1958, I think, the first edition. And the wonderful thing about her, I mean, she's dead now, but she, I mean, I think she died in the 80s. But when I, I wrote a book on Moroccan street food, it wasn't the first time I went to Morocco, but it was the first time that I went with the intention of researching food. And wherever I went... I heard descriptions were exactly were still what I was seeing and tasting and and uh, and eating, and she her book is absolutely wonderful. The pictures are wonderful. The recipes are amazing. They're not particularly user friendly because they're slightly vague, but hmm. you get a wonderful introduction to Moroccan food. So these are the the authors. I mean, there are others as well. You know, Charles Perry, who's translated medieval cookbooks. And when I started writing about food, I chose actually a few cookery writers as mentors, Charles Perry being one of them. Helen Sabri, who wrote uh, the Afghan cookbook, yes. um, was another. And Alan Davidson was a wonderful uh, mentor and help as well. Now, you noted you couldn't travel to some countries just based on not feeling comfortable going there because of what was going on. And obviously, you've done a lot of research into Islamic food over the course of hundreds and thousands of years. How have you found through the course of your research that politics, that war, that shifting and changing of borders has influenced cuisine and food sort of at large, particularly throughout the Middle East and through the Islamic world? Well, um, of course, upheavals make a difference. Some can be positive and others uh, negative. The positive example I can give you is Syrian food, Syrian cuisine. Nobody knew about Syrian food before the war. Right. And it's probably the only positive that came out of the Syrian tragedy. Yeah. With the refugees going, you know, so many refugees leaving the country and establishing themselves abroad – um, and the women using their natural talents of cooking to earn a living, all of a sudden Syrian food is, you know, kind of, it's not becoming common, but people are getting to know more and more about it. The negative is that some of the traditions and some of, some of the lore is at risk of being lost because eventually with generation after generation being living abroad, they're not going to cook the same food and some, dishes will be lost. But on the other hand, and also 
traditions within the country can be lost. Like in Beirut, before the civil war, we had all these street vendors, you know, with their carts of produce coming, people coming to our front doors, you know, sending us, you know, like mulberries, figs, very fragile seasonal fruit. Um, you don't have that anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the, that's a good point on the the positives and the negatives aspects there. And I mean, I think just about Aleppo pepper, which is becoming almost commonplace in the United States. Yes. You know, most supermarkets, not maybe maybe not most, <laughs> but many supermarkets now carry Aleppo pepper, yes. which was sort of unheard of in the United States five ten years ago. So, well, thank you so much, Nissa. This was really thank nice you, to Brian. have you. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from today's show and all episodes on saltandspine.com. There, you'll find two recipes from Feast by Anissa Halu, the meatballs and sour cherry sauce, and the Zanzibari grilled fish in a coconut sauce. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe wherever you're listening. Our show today was produced by me, Brian Hogan-Stewart, and our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. You can find more at civickitchensf.com. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Greetings Adventurers is an award-winning comedy real play D&D podcast that has been running for a decade with 427 episodes in our first campaign. I didn't have back problems or kids when we started. My favorite thing about the show is that it's a group of friends playing D&D who don't take anything too seriously. Right, like would a normal group use a sphere of annihilation as a toilet? We threw so much mayonnaise in there. We just started a new campaign, so it's a great time to jump in. Or you can listen to our first level one all the way to level 20 adventure and have hundreds of hours of entertainment. New episodes every Monday, so listen to Greetings Adventurers on ACAST or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>